When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com It will be the strangest European Championships, particularly on record. No fans in some places, some fans in others, but still, the spectacle continues in adversity of the global pandemic in which we currently inhabit. I am Jake from What If Football, and this is the What If Football Euro Daily, episode 2, where we'll be previewing Group C and D, containing the likes of Netherlands, England, Scotland and Croatia. This episode will be going out on our podcast feed, which is wherever you get your podcast, be it Apple, be it Spotify, be it Acast, or even Amazon Music. Of course, it will be also going out on our newfangled Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash whatifffootball. After the Euros, we will be producing content seven days a week, be it contemporary podcasts, nostalgic podcasts, or football manager content seven days a week, 50 weeks a year, because we don't work Christmases here at Whatif Football. <laughs> Like, subscribe, give us a five-star review wherever you can, help us boost the algorithms. But let's get stuck into today's show, the Group C and D previews. So with Group C, we have to start off with the Netherlands, and the manager now is Frank de Boer, i.e. the Premier League's worst ever manager if you listen to Jose Mourinho. De Boer stepped in when Ronald Koeman went to Barcelona to fulfil his dream job. Some of the key players that the Netherlands have with the absence of Virgil van Dijk, two of which are at the heart of that defence. Stefan de Vrij and Mathis de Ligt, with the likes of Frenkie de Jong and Genie Wijnaldum in midfield, and, of course, the talismanic Memphis Depay up front. The Netherlands qualified for the European Championships, unlike in the last 2014 European Championships tournament, and they did so by securing a superior head-to-head over Germany with uh, a 4-2 win combating the 3-2 loss in Amsterdam against the Germans. However, the Netherlands wouldn't finish above Germany, despite this head-to-head record, because Northern Ireland eked out a nil-nil draw against the Dutch in qualification, which meant, thanks to Germany's six wins and two losses, uh, seven wins and one loss, rather, sorry, um, the Netherlands finished second and qualified automatically. 
in and amongst this period, we had the Netherlands reaching a another final of a, well, let's call it a tournament rather than a major tournament when they lost in the final of the UEFA Nations League to Portugal in 2019, getting over the line with uh, wins over Belarus, Estonia and a win at home over Northern Ireland for this group. In terms of the better draw, Germany got France and Portugal, whether, whereas uh, the Netherlands received Ukraine, Austria and North Macedonia. So finishing second perhaps has had its advantages here for the Dutch. In terms of the Nations League, they were very, very close to making the finals again. Of course, no team um, from the first ever UEFA Nations League finals made the second edition, which will be played out in October. The Netherlands took one point from the matches against Italy and a draw against Bosnia was the difference between those finals and not. So, in terms of the World Cup qualification, the Netherlands began absolutely horrifically. With, um, if you listened yesterday, you'd uh, know that, it, of my opinion, it was the biggest, the best game of the window in March, losing 4-2 to Turkey, but the Netherlands have since bounced back against wins, against, wins against the likes of Latvia and Gibraltar to... Uh, rubber stamp that joint second position with Montenegro and Norway on six points after two games. In terms of the European Championship and its history, the Dutch first qualified for the tournament in 1976, so we're talking here in between those in between those two uh, World Cup finals in the 70s under the likes of Johan Cruyff and uh, uh, Johan Neeskins and the ilk. They finished in the semi-finals that time round. Um, they qualified ahead of the likes of Poland, Italy and Belgium, but ultimately lost to the eventual winners, of course, Antonin Penenka's Czechoslovakia, losing 3-1 in extra time there. They would salvage a win in the tournament, the uh, four-team tournament, of course, winning against Yugoslavia 3-2 also after extra time. They'll go out in the groups of the 1980 tournament, despite a win over Greece and a draw against Czechoslovakia, but in the all-important match, which we discussed yesterday, the uh, only the top team went through to the final, and that team was West Germany, who beat the Netherlands 3-2, and the West Germans, who, of course, around this time, always won the Euros, or at least got to the final, three finals in a row for the Germans there. The Dutch's qualification for the 1984 tournament was bizarre because they lost on goal difference to Spain. Spain, who incidentally won their last game 12-1 against Malta, which uh, barred the Netherlands from the from the tournament. And up until the 2016 edition, the Netherlands had qualified and done pretty well at every single European Championships. They won the tournament, of course, in 1988. Marco van Basten, Frank Rijkaard, you know, Rude Hullet the heroes that day, but mainly the 23-year-old Marco van Basten, the hat-trick against the English, obviously the volley against the Soviet Union in the final, still remains the Dutch's only international trophy. They were outdone on penalties against Denmark in 92, the eventual winners there in the semi-finals in Sweden. They were outdone by France again on penalties in 1996 as quarter-finals. And in 2000, they were outdone by Italy also on penalties in uh, the semi-final there. 2004 broke that duck as uh, the Netherlands won a penalty shootout this time against Sweden, but would go out to Portugal, the hosts and eventual losers in the 2004 semi-final. They didn't go out or even have to play a penalty shootout in 2008, but rather got thrashed by Russia 3-1 after extra time in Austria and Switzerland. And that was their last European Championships knockout match because, of course, they went out in the groups losing all three games to Germany, Portugal and Denmark in uh, Poland and Ukraine and of course didn't qualify it last time out which means 
the last time that Netherlands won a knockout stage match at the European Championships was against Sweden in 2004 and the only one, the last one in the 21st century was the 6-1 against Yugoslavia where Patrick Kluivert got a hat-trick. This time out it looks as though they'll play a 3-5-2 despite playing a 4-3-3 a lot throughout qualification. Perhaps the injury to Virgil van Dijk has changed that and sort of necessitated that one. They have played a 3-5-2 during the pre-tournament friendlies. A little of the width in the back line can be uh, better utilised in this 3-5-2, really. You've got Owen Wijndal and Denzel Dumfries, the young wing-backs, the precocious wing-backs who love to burst forward at an alarming rate. And in terms of centre-backs, it shows how well-stocked they are because they could even afford to leave Sven Botman out of the team instead, sending Botman to the under-21 Euros which they got to the semi-finals of, I think. Um, Dillit and De Vrij are nailed on to be in the in this back three, with the possibility of Nathan Ake, the uh, much-sidelined Nathan Ake, left centre-back Manchester City player. The midfield three, although if you ask uh, Dutch fans, they wouldn't, they would rather prefer Martin De Roon to be out of the team, because I think he's a bit more, a bit too defensive for their liking, but it would be Atalanta's Martin De Roon alongside Frenkie de Jong and Gini Wijnaldum in that midfield three, because they have started 13 games together over the past two years, and it's clearly De Boer's preferred three. It was um, Koeman's preferred three as well. Alternatives, we've got plenty in that in that uh, respect. We've got David Klaassen as well. He could be brought in. Ryan Gravenberg, it could be too much too soon for him, but he's an absolute top talent and probably will be playing by the time Qatar 2022 comes around. Alternatively, have got uh, Donny van der Beek, although he's not played all that much for Manchester United, as we know. De Jong is a very flexible player in the system. He could play at the back, he could play midfield, he could play, even play on in the uh, wing-back roles. We all know Wijnaldum's qualities on the ball, box-to-box. And even that De Bruyne, um, he, yeah, he's defensive but I think that's the beauty of that midfield three. You've got uh, flexible flexibility in De Jong. You've got arriving late into the box, Wijnaldum. You've got De Roon, who can as well, let's not forget. Be fairly attacking in his own right. He does play for Atalanta, after all, in that high-energy, high-flexible, fluid system that uh, Gasparini likes to play. And in the 3-5-2, this is where the uh, systems diverge slightly. We've got Memphis Depay and one other, preferably for the manager, I think it's Luke De Jong, um, Memphis could also be used deeper or wide against weak opposition with uh, De Jong being the tagman. Alternatively, for me personally, uh, by form, by club form at least, Wolfsburg, Wout, Wolfsburg's Wout Weghorst is absolutely in stunning form and I think he has to play ahead of Luke De Jong there really. And I think leaving Stephen Bergvine out of the team, obviously Bergvine hasn't played a right lot for Tottenham this uh, this season. I think leaving him out has inferred this switch to a 3-5-2 rather than a 4-3-3 or a, uh, or a 3-4-3. And uh, the quality in depth at least might not be there with uh, Berghaus and Promise, although Promise could play on uh, the right wing-back role as well. And the only other debatable point really is the uh, is the goalkeeper really, because at the last minute Jasper Sillinson um, didn't get included in my uh, in my previews yesterday because it was before uh, production, it was after production rather, he's a last minute dropout with um, Covid, he's uh, debated that to an extent on social media and through interviews etc so we were, uh, he's out of the squad and you can expect uh, Krull or Stecklenburg to take the number one jersey probably 
Tim Krull should a penalty shootout arise. And on to the non-fancied, the unfancied team of Group C. We've got the debutants, the only one of two debutants in the tournament. Of course, we covered Finland yesterday. This is North Macedonia under the manager, Igor Ankolovsky. The key players in uh, North Macedonia's lineup are Dimitrevsky, Aliovsky, probably the most familiar name to English eyes. We've got Ristovsky, we've got Enis Bardi as well, the Levante midfielder. We've got Elif Elmas, the uh, Napoli playmaker. And we have got, of course... They have a green Goran Pandev. North Macedonia were assured of a playoff place to uh, qualify for this tournament before qualification even took place. They took 14 points off Slovenia, Israel and Latvia in qualification, booked 15 points in the Nations League, the first edition of the Nations League against Armenia, Gibraltar and Liechtenstein was enough to be entered into the playoff path, the Group D playoff path. Kosovo were beaten in the North Macedonian capital, and then in Tbilisi, Goran Pandev struck the winner. They got draws against Georgia, the team they would beat to qualify for this tournament in the Nations League prior to this, and acquitted themselves quite well in the uh, in League C of the Nations League, almost being promoted to Group uh, to League B, but they couldn't avoid defeat against Armenia on the final day. And of course, in World Cup qualification, one of the standout results from the window in March was a 2-1 win in Germany against the uh, the four-time world champions there. And um, they are currently laying second in the qualification group, not behind Germany, but behind Armenia, of course. Now, as I say, North Macedonia are debutants, so their European Championships history is sparse, to say the least. They haven't qualified since the uh, dissolution of Yugoslavia. Um, they've had a few attempts since 1996 to qualify, never really come close. Obviously, as part of Yugoslavia, They've been to uh, a couple of semi-finals, etc., but they haven't carried over their lineage, so to speak. So they are officially, by UEFA's standing, debutants. Now, Igor Ankolovsky will play a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-2-1. The back line is fairly set. We've got Stoly Dimitrevsky in net. We've got Stefan Ristovsky, Kier Ristovsky and Vizar Musliu in the uh, central three. Boba Nikolov will patrol the right wing back berth with uh, Leeds' Zalioski on the left. And in terms of midfield, Ennis Bardi is a shoo-in after a great end to the season with Levante. He's got the composure to pick out a man. And in terms of his partner, you could either have Nikolov as a as a deputiser in there, or you could have Sporovsky or Adermi partnering him in there. Beltelai or Vel- Velkolovsky could deputise at right wing back should Nikolov come inside into this uh, midfield berth. They will defend in numbers, they will pack out the midfield, they'll uh, attack through the wings and also through the fulcrum in the attack, which is LFL Mass as well as Ennis Bardi, who will at times push on forward. Elmas is the number 10 in behind, of course, the main man up front. So Finland have a main man up front in Team Puki. North Macedonia also, Goran Pandev. Ilya Nestorovsky won't be there after he was sent home after screaming down a camera in uh, celebration against Liechtenstein in the World Cup qualification. So in his place, we've got Alexander Traskovsky, who um, is of Real Mallorca. They've been promoted this season, but Traskovsky didn't play all that much. Meanwhile, his strike partner in Pandev, he's got the joint third goals-to-shot ratio in the top five leagues at 0.32 with Genoa. So... If he does get in shooting positions, which could be fairly rare, 
there is a very, very good chance that he will score. So that is the one shining light that we do have from a North Macedonia perspective. Austria are the third team we will be previewing today. Austria under the manager Franco Foda and have players such as Dragovic, Alaba, Baumgartlinger, Arnautovic and of course RB Leipzig's Marcel Sabitzer. Now, Austria qualified on the penultimate day with a team they will play this summer, North Macedonia in a 2-1 win. They did start slowly in qualification, getting two defeats out of the blocks in March 2019, uh, but wouldn't lose again until qualification was sealed. Austria were quite well known in the qualification for Euro 2016 for being quite stoic defensively. And to be fair, they only dropped two points for that tournament. Didn't end too well, obviously, at the main tournament. Only Finland and Czech Republic out of the automatic qualifiers this time round, though, conceded more than them. Marko Arnautovic led the line with six goals, but didn't feature in the uh, Nations League promotion, hasn't featured for quite some time. Didn't feature in the pre-tournament friendlies either. Austria have been faultless winning uh, all three away in the Nations League at Norway, Romania, Northern Ireland and won promotion with a last-minute equaliser against Norway. However, in terms of World Cup qualification, they've started it fairly averagely. They were thrashed at home to Denmark, they drew against Scotland and their only win has come at home to the Faroe Islands. Now, for a team of Austria's history and standing in the European game, the World Cup semi-finals that they've reached... They have had little to no European Championships history. They didn't qualify through traditional means until 2016's edition, with, um, of course, their debut coming in 2008 as part of the co-host with Switzerland. They have only scored two European Championships goals, and as a result, they lost against Croatia to kick off their European Championship story, got that first goal against Poland in what I seem to remember was an absolutely sodden night in Vienna, and lost to Germany. So they didn't qualify, and I think Michael Ballack's got an absolute screamer of a free kick in that match, if I remember rightly. They went out, bottom of the pile, and in 2016, they did likewise. In a team, in a group rather, that looked very favourable. Austria won nine, drew one going into the tournament. But then they didn't score against Hungary, losing 2-0. They didn't score against Portugal, albeit getting a 0-0 draw against Portugal there. The eventual winners, let's not forget. And against Iceland, the supposed whipping boys, the supposed minnows of the group of the tournament, perhaps. Um, they were pushing for that goal in the 90th minute. A goal that would see them through, that would see Iceland out. But Iceland marched up the other end of the pitch, scored 1-2-1. One, one. The rest is history. They made a quarter-final. Austria, meanwhile, were on the first plane home. Now, since the Nations League last autumn, Austria have played in more of a 4-4-2 as... England fans might have seen in the warm-up to this competition last week. They had used, uh, they'd flitted between a 4-2-3-1 and a 4-3-3 throughout the qualification for this tournament, and they boast the least domestic-based players with two, with the majority of their players coming in the Bundesliga. In terms of uh, who's going to play in net for Austria, is quite a... Um, Quite a shootout for that jersey. Alexander Schlager played in all three World Cup qualifiers, but we have had Pavel Pervan or Heinz Lindner play in net since and before. Stefan Leiner, though, he's more of a, an assured place at right-back, almost nailed on the uh, the Borussia Mönchengladbach player. Likewise, at the heart of the defence, we've got Martin Hinteregger and Alexander Dragovic, both experienced. Meanwhile, if, they, if Austria do want to defend in numbers, if they want to pack out that defence with a five- 
or a three with wing backs. Or if there is a position to be filled, Stefan Ilsanka, who will play, is a uh, in the midfield as more of a half back, more of a uh, deep line playmaker. He can drop back into that defence as well. Now at left back, we are accustomed to seeing David Alaba more as a centre back or as a left back, but he plays a bit more aggressive in this system. He plays more of a centre midfielder or a left winger in this system. So at left back, Andreas Ulmer will take up that berth. Austria, because they have taken quite a lot of their talent from the Bundesliga and Bundesliga defences play a very, very high line. They can be caught out because of this. We've seen in the game against Scotland in the World Cup qualification, they were done, outdone by a simple free kick, really. And because of because of this high line, they were undone, undone with one simple pass, albeit from a, uh, from a set piece. A danger man for Austria is the right winger in Hoffenheim's Christoph Baumgartner, who can progress the ball very, very well up the pitch, looked especially sharp against England in the pre-tournament friendlies. To the uh, left of him, we've got Julian Baumgartlinger, the captain and uh, Leverkusen player, kicked off the year though with a crucial ligament injury and um, is working his way back into fitness there. In terms of his partner, we have got the aforementioned Stefan Ilsanka, Florian Grilic, another Bundesliga expert, can partner him as well. David Alaba, of course, can play centrally too, but he's more likely to play on the left there. Now up front, we have got a bit of a conundrum for Austria. Marco Arnautovic is the star turn, of course, up front for Austria. However, he is recovering from an injury he didn't feature against England in the pre-tournament friendly. In his place was Sasa Kalajic, who has scored three goals at tournament at uh, international level, plays his football with Stuttgart, had a very successful First season back in the Bundesliga for Stuttgart. He's outscored his out XG by seven goals. He's third most in Europe for that particular metric. Only made his international debut, curiously, in October, but has scored one every other game as an average for Stuttgart this season. Alongside him is the more creative Marcel Sabitzer, who will, alongside Alaba, Baumgartner and others, look to play in high balls for the, for the tall Kalajic. Alternatively, Arnautovic has a similar frame, he's a bit more strong on the ball and of course he's more of an all-round forward as opposed to Kalajic in there. But nonetheless, both of them very, very dangerous and will be shooting it out with the next team, our final Group C team, for that second and third place. And our last team is Ukraine. Andrei Shevchenko has recovered from uh, the failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup with his job still intact and performed very, very admirably in qualification. You've got the likes of Piotr, Matvienko, Yamalenko, Zinchenko, Malinovsky, one of the heartbeats of this Ukrainian team, and Roman Yaramchuk up front. And if you can have a surprise package in qualification, Ukraine perhaps were it. They dropped just four points, and they were both away to the next best teams in Portugal and Serbia. They thrashed Serbia 5-0, so yesterday we spoke of Serbia thrashing Russia 5-0. This is the sort of level that Ukraine are on, significantly higher than Russia at this stage. Ukraine just conceded four goals and their record meant that they were seeded for the tournament because UEFA are sort of going to, go, to progressing towards a, a waiting system that favours teams that performed well in qualification as opposed to historically. Ukraine, as opposed to their recent exploits, had been promoted to the top league in the UEFA Nations League but have since returned back to 
back to League B after that walkover against Switzerland, which uh, got them relegated for, uh, obviously, COVID regulations, etc. Ukraine have started off the World Cup qualification group undefeated. Also, you could say they've started it winless because they've drawn all three of their games away in France and at home to Finland and Kazakhstan. An imperfect start, to say at least, when you consider the, uh, the last two teams they've played there, especially at home. In terms of Ukraine's European Championships history, of course they do share the history with the Soviet Union there, but Russia have officially at least taken on that mantle. So since the breakup of the Soviet Union, it took Ukraine until 2012 to qualify for the European Championships. And like Austria earlier, that was because they were qualified automatically as co-hosts. They would go out in the groups despite Andrei Shevchenko himself scoring that first ever First ever European Championships goal, and in fact, it is their only European Championships goals. The two he scored against uh, Sweden in Kiev. Meanwhile, they've since lost to France and England in the home tournament in 2012 as they bowed out in the group stages. And in 2016, they lost 2-0 to Germany, 2-0 to Northern Ireland and 1-0 to Poland. Again, bowing out bottom of the pile. And this time round, Ukraine, if they are to succeed and make that first ever knockout phase in terms of the European Championships, they'll have to do so having been absolutely dogged by injuries. I can count about seven, eight, nine withdrawals that they've had, yet still they keep probably their two or three main players. It's likely to be a 4-2-3-1 under Shevchenko. Shevchenko... He's reaped the rewards of not being sacked after failing to qualify for Russia in 2018. He's got a very good blend of youth and experience. They have had this um, sort of dark horse narrative surrounding them, a bit like Turkey, a bit like Denmark. But since qualification, they have been relegated from Nations League. They haven't been particularly fantastic in the World Cup qualification tournament. Of course, you can uh, put a big uh, COVID asterisk next to that. Andrei Piatov will start in goal You've got Alexander Karaveyev at right-back as well and the centre-back partnership of Mikola Matvienko and Sergei Kristov will be a very hard nut to crack for teams in this group, particularly Austria and North Macedonia. You've got Vitaly Mikolenko on the left-back berth with uh, Alexander Zinchenko playing a bit higher, a bit centrally as well in a role that is not too dissimilar to the one he plays at Man City, really, but his starting position will be a central midfield one as opposed to a left-back berth. Partnering him will be one of Yevon Makarenko or Tara Stepanenko, which um, more likely to be the latter, really. And from the right, we have got Andrei Yarmolenko with Korsner. Hasn't played um, too much for West Ham. He's got that famous left foot. He does his uh, iron robin trick. Perhaps overused, but... He's overused because he works it very, very well. In terms of the number 10 role, we have got the man himself, Ruslan Malinovsky, my one to watch for Ukraine, which we'll uh, discuss later on in this week when we look at some of the best players at this tournament. He's got the fifth most assists in Europe with uh, with 12 assists. He creates the, one of the most chances for his team with the nice ninth most shot-creating actions within 90 minutes um, in Europe as well. He, he's ended the season absolutely brilliantly. Eight assists in the final two months uh, for Atalanta as they qualify for yet another Champions League campaign. He's probably one of the most informed players at the European Championships. Through the uh, injury of uh, Yevon Konoplyanka, we have got Tiskankov 
coming in at left wing. And in terms of recovering from injury, Roman Yaramchuk should return to uh, lead the line, lead the Ukrainian line. And he can play out wide, but in this team he will play right through the middle. He's more potent going up front and he's having the season of his life. He scored 23 goals for a Genk team this season and could find himself in a bit of a transfer saga should he have a good championships this season, this summer. After this short break, we are returning with a 2021 Trivial Tease and of course after that, we'll be previewing Group D. Welcome back. So now if you uh, listened yesterday or if you listened to the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, we like to do a thing called the 2000s Trivial Teaser. Now today, throughout the Euros, we're doing a 2021 Trivial Teaser. So the rules of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast are that the answer is a player who's played in the 2000s. This one is a player who has played or will play in the 2021 European Championships, or rather, as it's known through licensing issues, Euro 2020. So well done to the likes of Maracas Flute, Harry Holland and Pazza SAFC for the correct answer yesterday. It was, of course, Kieran Trippier, who played under Sean Dyche and Diego Simeone and alongside the likes of Danny Ings, Lukas Jukovic, Koke, Eric Lamella and Alvaro Morata. Who else would have played with Morata and Jukovic other than Kieran Trippier? Now, today we have got a centre-half, so we're staying in that back line. Well, centre half who has played underneath Maurizio Sarri and Rino Gattuso, Gennaro Gattuso there. Some of his teammates we have had Gigi Donnarumma, we've had Manuel Locatelli, Hakan Kahlanoglu, David Trezeguet and Alessandro Del Piero. So a centre half who has played underneath Sarri and Gattuso and alongside Donnarumma, Locatelli, Kahlanoglu, Trezeguet and Del Piero. Find out the answer on tomorrow's show. Shout me at the in the streets at whatif underscore YouTube if you think they know the answer. Or comment underneath the Patreon audio link to this on our Patreon page. After this short break, we'll be going to Group D, to England, to Croatia, to Czech Republic, and, of course, to Scotland. And we start off in Group D with, from my biased English perspective, we've got to start with England, haven't we? The manager is, of course, Gareth Southgate, who took up the mantle after Sam Allardyce's vaunted uh, one-match spell as manager. He's, of course, took England to the semi-finals of the World Cup, the Nations League, and through a little bit of a downslope on social media in terms of his uh, standing, he takes England to the European Championships with probably one of England's most deep squads that they've particularly ever had. The key players are Harry Maguire in defence, if he is fit for the tournament. Likewise, Jordan Henderson in midfield. And alongside him, Declan Rice, one of the perhaps most underrated and key integral players of this team. You've got Phil Foden, of course. You've got Raheem Sterling. Numerous others, but above all else, of course, Harry Kane. England qualified for the European Championships like never before. Sometimes England go undefeated and they look okay. I'm looking at you. Fabio Capello for the 2010 World Cup. I'm looking at you, Roy Hodgson, for the 2016 Euros. But here, despite England losing 2-1 to the Czech Republic, they were very, very goal-hungry. Put seven beyond Montenegro, six beyond Bulgaria, five beyond Czech Republic and Kosovo. England qualified with a third-best goal difference in qualification. Dampening some spirits is the 
Nations League performance, perhaps. A loss with nine men against Denmark at Wembley, the first loss to Denmark at home since 1983. And of course, a defeat in Belgium, fairly straightforward 2-0 defeat in Belgium, which signalled the end of England's Nations League contention there. However, England have since began the World Cup qualification perfectly, winning three from three, away in Albania and at home to Poland and San Marino, and looked fully on course to go to Qatar next December. In terms of the European Championships history, England probably are the biggest nation not to win the Euros. They have had a couple of semi-final exploits. The first tournament they played in was in 1968, a four-team tournament. So, of course, the worst performance they could have possibly had was the semi-finals and they went out to uh, Dragan Zajic, 1-0 winner for Yugoslavia in 68. And it was 12, 12 long years since... Uh, Another European Championship came around and uh, another first stage exit there in the groups this time, drawing to Belgium, losing to Italy, but actually beating Spain in the groups. But it wasn't enough as England finished third in the group. You had the misfirings of under Bobby Robson of the misqualification in 1985, of course, against Denmark. And in 1988, where three losses against Ireland, the Soviet Union and the Netherlands meant they were out of the groups again. Graham Taylor could do no better on the other side of that World Cup semi-final defeat in 1990, losing to Sweden in the all-or-nothing tie in the third group game in Euro 92. Euro 96 under Terry Venables was a very, very different story. They bounced back from the dentist chair, what would you call it, a dentist chair Ferrari in the media, uh, Gaza redeeming himself immediately with the Scotland goal and the one of the most perfect nights in English football history, the 4-1 win over the Netherlands, they would, of course, go out to the to to Germany on penalties, as was often the case in the 90s. And then in 2000, under Kevin Keegan, they went out in the groups thanks to a last-ditch penalty by Romania. Fared not too much better in the quarterfinals of both 2004 and 2012, going out on penalties to Portugal in Portugal and Italy in Ukraine. In between, that was the Wally with a Broly scenario with uh, Steve McLaren failing to get England over the line in qualification missing out to Croatia, to Russia. And in 2016, Roy Hodgson's third tournament as England manager ended in ignominy of a 2-1 defeat to Iceland in the last 16, meaning that England's last and only European Championships knockout stage match win was over Spain, and even that was on penalties. So England are yet to win a European Championships knockout match inside 90 minutes. The omens are not there, but... The national spirit is perhaps getting on that way. Gareth Southgate looks likely to play one of a 4-3-3 or a 3-4-3 should he revert to more pragmatic times against stronger teams. There are fitness doubts over the likes of Harry Maguire, Jordan Henderson. Jack Grealish and Declan Rice have featured more in the pre-tournament friendlies, which will be uh, fears quelled almost, but Harry Maguire remains one of the biggest question marks against this English team in terms of fitness. England have one of the youngest squads. They've got the least amount of players over 30, which is just the one with Jordan Henderson adding to that during the tournament. And on the other side of the coin, they've got the joint most players, 21 and under, um, at six with Wales. Jordan Pickford will start in net. Nick Pope is potential number two, potentially even number one, was ruled out because of uh, shoulder surgery, which means it is a straight shootout between Pickford and potentially Dean Henderson, although Henderson hasn't played any of the 
pre-tournament friendlies. Trent Alexander-Arnold's injury, which he suffered against Austria, means the right-back berth is a little clearer, although not too clear at the same time, really. We've got Kyle Walker in there. Probably could be equally Rhys James. We don't know all too much for the right-back berth, judging by the pre-tournament friendlies, because Kyle Walker and Rhys James were unavailable for both games due to their involvement in the Champions League final. As a result, England have had Ben Godfrey and Kieran Trippier at that position. Well, of course, Ben Godfrey won't be in that right wing back berth or the right back berth because he hasn't made the 26. At centre half, of of course, Harry Maguire is the first name on the team sheet in defence, but his injury um, will rule him out probably of the first game against Croatia. Alongside him, John Stones' return to form will be a big relief in the country, especially owing to the long-term injury of Joe Gomez. There is a worry that without uh, Maguire or Ruben Diaz, John Stones could be slightly sloppy. Now in this back four, we've got Tyrone Mings is probably at the forefront of this. Now Ben White had a pretty decent game against Romania this weekend, gone. And as a result, takes the place of Trent Alexander-Arnold in the defence for England. Now, Ben White is more comfortable in a three. He could easily play uh, as cover for Declan Rice in midfield as well, which is probably one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Ben White got the nod for the number 26 role for England. Connor Cody could play in the four as well, but he's arguably more suited to a three. Ben White looked quite at home in a four, but Connor Cody in... um, Recently, in terms of form for Wolves as well, as they've flitted from a three to a four, doesn't look all at home in a four, and um, perhaps in a three he can drop a bit deeper with two either side of him, which would be Kyle Walker or Reese James as the right side of centre back in a three at the back, and to the left it would be it's a straight shootout. It could be they could have no complaints if it was either one or the other, but it's going to be Luke Shaw or Ben Chilwell. Of course, Kieran Trippier come out can come out to the left as well. Now, Ben Chilwell hasn't featured in the tournament friendlies because of his involvement in winning the Champions League with Chelsea. So we're at a bit of a loss there. It could easily be Shaw, it could easily be Chilwell, it could easily be Trippier as well, to be fair. And in centre midfield, we've got probably more of an easier shout. So if we're playing, if, now I'll say, if England are playing a 4-3-3, don't want to use the word we or I or whatever. (laughs) If England are to play a 4-3-3, we've got Declan Rice, I just said it again. Declan Rice in the midfield three is nailed on. He's probably one of the more important players in this England cog, potentially more important than Harry Maguire and Harry Kane because of the drop-off from Rice. In terms of his position, at least, he's more pronounced than the other two because Henderson is more of a engine room, he's more of a number eight rather than a, a deeper role, which we did see at the World Cup in 2018, but... Also at that 2018 World Cup, England did get outrun in midfield against a team that they will face in the groups here and in Croatia. John Nenson will be if fit. He didn't look all too fit against Romania, but obviously is that building up of match fitness. In his place, it will be either Calvin Phillips, who again, recovering from injury, it's kind of a walking wounded at the minute for England. Alternatively, of course, we do have Jude Bellingham is there. The 17-year-old, as the commentators will not let you forget, um, he obviously remarkable footballer probably he, he will get minutes at this tournament unlike teenagers of uh, tournaments gone by i.e. looking at you Theo Walcott in 2006 and of course at the forefront of this midfield is Mason Mount 
Equally, Phil Foden could drop deep. Jack Grealish could also drop deep into that central role, but they're more preferable out on the left. Mason Mount does drift into that left space as well. And in terms of creation, shot creation, chance creation, Mason Mount and Jack Grealish are amongst the best in Europe this season. Thomas Muller levels of uh, chance creation, key passes. Jack Grealish draws so many fouls that England's set-piece success in the 2018 World Cup, it sort of infers that he will play a very key part. Now, after the Man of the Match performance against Romain, there's been a lot of clamour for him to play. But we are forgetting that Man City and Chelsea play, so Mount and Foden weren't available for that game. So it's, I tend to think that he won't go for Grealish. In terms of a starting role, coming off the bench, definitely, especially in a world with five subs, he will definitely get a chance to um, to impress this summer and get his name in lights in terms of an England. You can tell he loves playing for England as well, as seen in the most recent friendlies. In terms of the front line, we will probably see Raheem Sterling as opposed to... Jadon Sancho got a start against Romania. Raheem Sterling, obviously, like Foden, like so many of us playing in the, uh, playing in the European finals there, was unavailable for selection, but you sense that Gareth Southgate trusts a lot of the 2018 team that took him to the semi-final. Sterling is probably going to be better on the left as opposed to the right, but I think it will be a shootout between Jadon Sancho and Raheem Sterling. Marcus Rashford also in and amongst he's carrying a knock that he will have surgery on after the tournament. Um, I think Phil Foden has taken this left wing spot for himself, obviously. As I say, there's that clamour for Jack Grealish, but I do think it's going to be Phil Foden in that left wing place and Mason Mount as technically a number 10, but as more of a, a left-sided uh, central midfielder there, carrying things forward for England. Now up front, it can only be Harry Kane, can't it? Dominic Calvert-Lewin offers a decent enough plan B, so, so does uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Harry Kane up front. But I think the tactical shift for England is more pronounced with Kane dropping forward, dropping deeper rather in this sort of nine and a half, ten role that he plays for his club and you do have inside forwards bursting on which which is what makes me think it would be a Sancho, a Sterling, a Foden as opposed to a Grealish who doesn't have the pace of the aforementioned three and probably will be the way that Southgate wants to play it with Mount dropping in almost alongside Kane Slightly deeper on the left and to the wide, with Foden Sterling cutting in as inside forwards, and that's how. Excuse the granular detail, but that's how uh, England will progress in the final third. There, now in terms of assists, Kane is right up there alongside Sancho in terms of assists. They've got twenty-five between them this season. Only Harry Kane and Lukaku are in separate top tens for goals and assists in Europe. Harry Kane being thirty-seven, so there's definitely scope there for different patterns of play than the you know set-piece mania that we saw at the 2018 World Cup in Russia. There's definitely been an evolution for that front line, a more refreshed front line for England at the tournament. Jaunting slightly up north, we go to Scotland, of course, in their first ever tournament since 1998. Now, the manager is Steve Clark. The key players look no further than Andy Robertson at left wing-back. Kieran Tierney, also a left wing back, also a left back, will play in a centre back role. Meanwhile, in uh, in midfield, you've got John McGinn, you've got Scott McTominay, you've got Ryan Fraser, and you've got freshly minted Scottish player Che Adams. 
up front. Scotland were assured of their place in the playoffs uh, thanks to the performance at the Nations League, the first ever Nations League, where they got promoted. In terms of qualification for the European Championships, their 15-point haul was some way off the runaway leaders, Russia, Belgium. And despite a 3-0 loss in Kazakhstan, Scotland were firmly in third place. They had to go through the rigmarole of penalties which had scuppered so many of uh, so many British teams before them, most notably England, of course. But they won both. Israel were dispatched at Hamden. Mitrovic was the villain in Serbia, in Belgrade. Or rather, David Marshall was the hero. Scotland made a good go of promotion to the, the A-League of the Nations League against a COVID-ravaged, weak Czech Republic team. Um, but losses in Israel and Slovakia towards the end spelled the end of that particular promotion plush. Now in the World Cup qualification, Scotland have started undefeated with valuable points against Austria and Israel and they're still to play the leaders Denmark, which will be the difference between automatic qualification and a, and a potential playoff. Now Scotland's history with the European Championships you could pretty much boil down to the 1990s and the only two tournaments in the 90s we're in 92 and 96, and now, if you mention Scotland and international tournament football, you of course know where they finished. They of course went out in the groups. Now, they were fairly close to getting out of the groups in 1996. I say fairly, very close. They got a point against the Netherlands. They of course lost to England in the second game and beat Switzerland in the final game. And had it not been for a Patrick Clivert goal, a consolation goal as it were, or as it would have been in any other normal game, in the other game in a 4-1 win for England against the Dutch. Had it not been for that, Scotland would have qualified for the quarterfinals, their very first knockout stage match of tournament football. And um, obviously that happened. Scotland went out on a goal difference. Four years prior, they exited the tournament with a 3-0 win over the Commonwealth Independent States. And that was a win when they were already eliminated after losses to the Netherlands and Germany, the world champions and the holders, which is uh, no embarrassment really for the Scottish. The news in the squad announcement for the 2020 European Championships was the uncapped Billy Gilmore making the squad. Scotland were light in uh, central midfield suddenly, even with the likes of Kenny McLean and Ryan Jack ruled out, but they still have a whole host of midfield talent. You've got Ryan Gold also omitted, uh, Ollie McBurney injured, Scotland, like England, haven't really had the best of luck with injuries. Now, they will play three at the back, either in a 3-4-3 or a 3-5-2. And in net, you've got David Marshall with good cover in terms of Craig Gordon. At centre-half, you've got Grant Hanley, who will play at the centre of that. One of Jack Hendry, for, who plays football at Oost End. Or Leeds's Liam Cooper will play to the right with uh, Kieran Tierney, almost pretty much nailed on at left centre-half because you have to... Shoehorn in, Kieran Tierney and Andy Robertson, who will play left wing back and is Scotland's captain and their best player. They absolutely need to play both of them. Stephen O'Donnell on the other side at right wing back will play the uh, Movewell right back there will play on the right side. Alternatively, in the middle, you could have Scott McTominay move to centre-half, as he has done for quite some time, but he's often found out of position and um, he's probably better playing in a a deep-lying role in midfield or a box-to-box role that is more suited to in his uh, club game. This uh, makeshift defence that they have had to play recently 
it's opened them up a little bit against strong teams like Belgium, like Russia. But in midfield, there's, there's a fairly decent glut of talent there, really, even with the injuries to McLean, to Jack. You've got John McGinn, who plays more forward of the three. You've got Scott McTominay in there. And then one of a whole host of players, really, Ryan Christie can play in there. Billy Gilmore, if he gets the nod, can play in there. Stuart Armstrong is, for me, one of the most one of the most underrated, untalked-about footballers in the Premier League. John Fleck is a decent enough name in the midfield as well. Callum McGregor, ball-winning, box-to-box player as well. For Celtic, he can easily fit in that three. So Steve Clark, he said he's, he wants the headaches in terms of team selections. He's definitely got one at centre, central midfield because he's got easily there seven names who could play in central midfield, which will be good in terms of keeping fresh names and uh, keeping the team fresh throughout the tournament if they do go on to the knockout phase. Up front, now there's Che Adams, who has had a very, very good start to his uh, career, national career for the Scottish team. His inclusion bolsters them no end up front. Um, Lyndon Dykes has come on leaps and bounds, plays football for QPR, of course, and does seem to like playing for Flame for Scotland as well. He scores some decent goals. Ryan Fraser could also be an alternative in there for either of them, really, uh, playing a bit more of a 10, playing a bit more of a 3-5-1-1, the uh, Christmas tree formation. Fraser's a bit more creative, drops a bit deeper. Dykes is more of a front man and Che Adams is probably sort of in between the two. And in terms of tactical flexibility, in terms of tactical now, Steve Clark seemingly has it here. And in terms of prospects for qualification into a knockout phase, this is probably Scotland's best chance since the great 70s teams, the 80s teams, the, the Archie Gemmels, the Graham Soonesses, etc., it's probably their best chance. Of course, with the potentially three teams qualified, that does help a lot. But as we've seen in 86 and 1990 with Scotland, that um, can also be scuppered very easily. But I do expect them to put up a very good fight with uh, the tactical flexibility that they've carved out for themselves in the uh, intervening 18 to 24 months. Let's go to Croatia now and to Zlatko Dalic as the manager. We've got... All of the key names are back from the World Cup final in 2018. We've got Dejan Lovren, we've got Luka Modric, Mateo Kovacic, Marcelo Brozovic, Ivan Perisic, Andrei Kramaric, Ante Rebic. And despite all these, uh, these household names, these fantastic footballers, generational footballers in parts, Croatia were very unspectacular in qualification. Perhaps a hangover from the World Cup final is God. 17 goals in eight matches to qualify out of a routine group that contains Slovakia, Hungary and Wales. Bruno Petkovic top scored with four goals in this qualification. One of those four came in a qualification ceiling 3-1 win over Slovakia. And a late win for uh, France against Sweden kept Croatia afloat in League 8 in the Nations League. So it's they have dropped off quite significantly since the, since the World Cup in 2018. Also have a loss against England to their name in the first ever edition of the Nations League after the World Cup in 2018-2. Croatia got a loss against Slovenia in the to open up the World Cup qualification for next year, but they have since bounced back to top with wins over Cyprus and Malta, so hardly big footballing nations, but they do look in pole position to qualify for Qatar in 2022. Now, Croatia's history with the European Championships Obviously, they were part of the Yugoslav Republic up until 1992. 
so they didn't they don't they won't take on their records officially by UEFA. Obviously, Yugoslavia appeared at a few semi-finals prior to the dissolution of the republic. Now, Croatia's first independent appearance at the at any tournament really was in 1996, and started as they meant to go on really with a, a quarter-final display at Euro '96. So it, bowing out to Germany, a team they would beat in the quarterfinals of the World Cup two years on. They performed heroically. You got the uh, the beginnings of Davos Uka there, who would top score in France 98. They beat the likes of Turkey and Denmark, but were beaten by Portugal and Germany. Although last eight, a decent enough showing for Croatia in, the, in their first ever tournament football game. Now in 2004, they would go out in the groups after a loss to England in the final match day. And as we discussed yesterday, went out to Turkey in one of the most bizarre games of tournament football I've ever seen in my life in the quarterfinals, going ahead on 119 minutes, yet not progressing to the semifinals after suffering an equaliser and then suffering the the heartbreak of penalty shootout defeat. Euro 2012 was another group stage exit against another, really, they've had, Croatia have had rotten luck in terms of uh, group stages. They had France and England in 2004. They had Italy and Spain in 2012 although they drew against Italy and Spain needed an 88th minute winner in uh, the final group game of the year 2012 four years on the Croatia would beat Spain 2-1 in the final game usurping them going to going to top spot avoiding Italy and playing Portugal but the result was still the same Spain went out in the last 16 and so did Croatia Croatia are yet to win like England, yet to win a European Championships knockout game. Of course, they took Portugal to extra time, they took Turkey to penalties, and Germany could only beat them 2-1. So it's been fairly minuscule in terms of the difference of winning those knockout stage games. Now, Zlatko Dalic prefers a 4-2-3-1 with Nikola Vlasic playing more of a 10 in that midfield, or a 4-3-3. Since the World Cup, Croatia have been rocked by the retirements of Subasic in net. You've got Ivan Rakitic in midfield. He's also retired from international football. And Mario Mandzukic up front has uh, retired since the heroics of the World Cup in Russia. It's pretty much in a squad in transition, really. There's plenty of heroes from 2018 that remain. Some, as I say, have retired. And the younger generation are now knocking on the door, but some of them aren't as ready to uh, fulfil a role in the starting eleven. Dominic Livakovic of Dinamo Zagreb fame, he will take up the number one role. Meanwhile, you've got Sim Vasalko, who hasn't been getting in the uh, door for Atletico Madrid. He started the season injured, he hasn't been able to usurp Kieran Trippier in that right wing back role. He's only played once in terms of club football since February and uh, expect Josip Juranovic to start ahead of him if Vasalko isn't match fit. In terms of in centre-half, you've got Dan Lovren and Domagoj Vida, who were the heroes of uh, the 2018, the main the mainstays of the World Cup, really. You've got Duj Kaleta Kar, who is a, a youngster who could also play, and uh, football manager legend Josko Varial. He could also make a name for himself at this tournament if he uh, plays at centre-half. Dan Lovren is carrying a bit of an injury, so you, you never know, you might see him, um, especially since Tin, Yed, Tin Yedvai has been dropped as well, but you've probably got to assume that Coletta Carr will be the youthful name that steps up should Lovren not be fit for the game. He's not played any football since April, at least on a club level. 
And he's in a bit of a race to be fit, at least match fit anyway. Left back is a bit of a more, more assured place. Bono Barisic looks pretty much nailed on to start for Croatia. And then I said Denmark yesterday had one of the best midfields in the uh, tournament. Croatia are right up there, along with Italy as well, to be fair, and Spain, and even perhaps England, maybe. Um, maybe being biased there, but Luka Modric, you know, he's a generational talent, you know, if I'm allowed to use that term. One of the best midfielders of all time. Um, then it's two of Kovacic, Brozovic, Badel, Pasalic, and then Vlasic, of course. Obviously, that infers a bit of a change in system, uh, depending on Vlasic's uh, appearance there. He will be playing as a 10 rather than an 8. Um, but in a 4-3-3, you have got Badel and Brozovic, who are a lot more holding. Even Modric has played a lot deeper for his club this season, which it's, be, it's been mainly because of Casemiro dropping dropping in and uh, playing a bit more attacking for Real Madrid. But in terms of his nation, I think Modric will be a little bit higher in more of an eight rather than a six. Badel has got the most interceptions in Europe. Um, also, you've got Kovacic, an excellent box-to-box um, role there as long, alongside uh, Modric in a three. Pasalic could fulfil that number 10 as well as Vlasic as well if we do play a 4-2-3-1. This is the strongest area for Croatia. We saw that um, with the England semi-final in 2018. Obviously, England have since um, since avenged that to some degree. Obviously, a Nations League group stage game isn't um, going to be repayment for a World Cup semi-final. But regardless... The midfield bullied Wales in qualification. They can bully a few more teams on the road to uh, a knockout stage appearance in this tournament too. Now out wide, they've still got the main man, Ivan Perisic at the left wing. Will night haunt the nightmares, the dreams of England fans in from 2018 and perhaps this time too for, uh, when the uh, first game comes around. You've got Josip Brekalo or Ante Rebic who can play right wing. Uh, Brekalo perhaps will... Uh, Start ahead of Rebic, who's coming back from a bit of a, a niggle on his calf there. Uh, Paslic can also play wide too. Up front, you've got any number of three names, really. Bruno Petkovic was the highest scorer in uh, qualification. You've also got Andrei Kramaric, who is probably the probably the first choice. Also, Ante Budimir, who's been banging in a few goals in La Liga as well. Uh, he's more than apt a replacement too. So it could be any one of those three men. And in a, in a tournament, more than ever, that you need fresh fresh faces and fresh legs to uh, kick on. Croatia could have an advantage here, especially with that midfield, especially with that up front um, three there that we've got. And if the youthful faces at centre-half can step up, Croatia, even though they've been kind of written off really, they could be very, very good dark horses in this tournament. We'll head things with Czech Republic and some of their best players we have seen seen the uh, like of in the Premier League this season haven't we we've got Vladimir Kufal Thomas Socek Matej Vidra has had a fantastic season as well and you look out to the continent you've got Jakub Jankto you've got Vladimir Darida you've also got Patrick Schick who will lead the line as well now Kosovo took them to the final day of qualification but Czech Republic qualified ahead of them after a very poor start obviously that the one that England fans will remember is the 5-0 drubbing of Czech Republic we can also remember the 2-1 defeat in Prague as well but, crucially, Czech Republic aren't the flimsy team that they were during the uh, qualifiers for this tournament. The Nations League has proven that. They stole promotion right from underneath Scottish nose on the final day, despite not uh, beating Scotland in the uh, in the Nations League. And 
they have got a point out of Belgium in the World Cup qualification, but have also suffered in defeat against Cardiff. So a bit Jekyll and Heidi at the minute. Um, they remain second in World Cup qualification ahead of Wales, but behind Belgium. But it's been a fairly average start and will hope to qualify. We'll have a qualification spot in terms of playoffs assured because of that promotion. Now, in terms of Czech Republic's European Championships history, they have got a winner's medal, of course, and that is, as we all know, thanks to the Penenka penalty against West Germany in the 1976 final. But let's not forget they did beat the World Cup finalists, the Netherlands 3-1 after extra time in the semi-final in Yugoslavia there. They've got a semi-final against their name in the 1960 edition. Also ran out losers, unfortunate losers, losers thanks to that horrific goalkeeping error in the final of Euro 96 against Germany, despite the Karol Poborski chip in the quarterfinal against Portugal. The penalty shootout heroics in the semi-final. Of course, we've also had the group stage exits of 1980, of 2000, of 2008, of 2016, but Littered in and amongst that, we've had the fantastic team that I can remember of 2004, the Barros, the Collar, the Nedved, where they were so close and had it not been for a silver goal method, they might still might have won that tournament really, losing to, uh, losing to Greece in that game. And of course, Greece, uh, Czech Republic's final, final uh, knockout stage game in European Championships was that 1-0 loss to Portugal. Czech Republic are wedded to a 4-2-3-1 and they're a fantastic uh, counter-attacking team, really. They will drop deep. They've got the names at the back to drop deep, really. Thomas Vlasic will keep goal for Czech Republic and, of course, the uh, the more familiar name of Vladimir Kufal coming off the back of a fantastic season for West Ham can play wing-back, can play right-back in a 5 or a 4. Should they need that? Should they even be, even be thinking of going to a 5 at the back? Andre Kalushka will play centre-back and partnering him will probably be one of Thomas Kalas of uh, Bristol City and Jakub Brabic. And that is, of course, because of Andre Kudela's 10-match ban there. Jan Borrell will play left-back and Thomas Socek will be the box-to-box player in the double pivot alongside Vladimir Derida. Derida, who can also play as a 10 a bit further forward. Socek, of course, is... Superb from set pieces. We all know his danger from set pieces. The third most aerial duels won in Europe. Alternatively to Derrida, Thomas Hollish is an option should Derrida go into the number 10 position. He picked up a... Hollish picked up a knock late on in the day, but he should be fit for the uh, for the tournament. Alex Kral will play right wing as opposed to Lucas Provo, who um, was struck down by injury, and which means Kral is... Pretty much a shoo-in for that right mid spot. On the other side, you've got Jakob Jankta, who loves to drift inwards and almost play in a 4-4-2, really. And Antonin Barak can also play at number 10 with uh, Vladimir Derrida waiting in the wings, perhaps. Up front, obviously, you've got Patrick Schick, and he's one of the most underrated uh, strikers, I think, in terms of Bundesliga. His temperament got called into question after that red card against Wales, but he... Uh, He's deadly from pretty much any distance. He's uh, quite a dangerous centre forward, and he will uh, he will be very dangerous to the t- to any team in Group D, really. And um, teams like Scotland, Croatia, and England without Harry Maguire will have to be on high alert against him. Really, they can play over the top with the pace of Yankta. They can play through the middle. Obviously, 
set pieces that are a danger when you have Sochek, when you have Schick in there as well. And they aren't there to make up the numbers, I don't think. We'll be back tomorrow with a third and final group preview because we'll be taking a look at Group E. We'll be taking a look at Group F. The Group of Death, Group F, with uh, Portugal, Germany and France and, of course, Hungary. We can't forget Hungary. And, of course, Group E with Spain and Slovakia, Sweden and Robert Lewandowski's Poland. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support on the podcast feed on YouTube and, of course, on our new Patreon page. Give us a like, subscribe. If you can stretch to it, I'd be greatly appreciative of our Patreon, any Patreon donation. And until tomorrow, see they up the three lines. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.